2: If it took me a rebranding to refocus my life, and if it took a rebranding for people to let go of the the blonde-haired, you know, kind of guy that they thought I was, because a lot of people would see who I was and make a decision about me, but they had, you know, then I would start talking, and they were like, "Wow, we never really knew that you were kind of this fucking serious, dude." Um, I've I've come to believe more that the course of my life and my career change and everything like that has happened since I changed my name has been more to do with an aggressive rebranding than any kind of spiritual significance, but I'll take it.
3: Welcome to the Movember podcast. I'm your host, Adam Garoni. This show is dedicated to the real stories about dealing, and sometimes not dealing, with life's challenges and changes. We think candid conversations about men and men's health is important, and we're dedicating this season to conversations all about transitions. Transitions. So each season is going to be around a particular topic, and uh, the topic for this season is around transitions. Well, it's uh, got a
2: much better host as well, Adam. (laughs) You are far better at this than I ever was. Well, i learned everything
3: off of of you, Osher. My goal on this podcast is to talk about the real shit. Osher Ginsburg was ready to do just that. You may know Osher as the host of Australia's Bachelor and Bachelorette, or you may be familiar with his older persona, Andrew G., Usher went from Andrew G for most of his television career. When he hosted Australian Idol, he rocked a mullet, bleached blonde hair, his fun loving, wild MC of the MTV era. Oh,
0: because you used to be known as An- Andy G. Yes. Um, when you were hosting Australian Idol. Yes. What's behind the name change?
2: I met a man who told me that if I changed my name, I'd change my life, and I thought, <laughs> pfft. Really? But I did, and it did. Yeah. Oh, did
3: I first knew of Osher as Andrew G, back in Australia as the host of MTV. I met Osher in LA, uh, must have been eight years ago, when we were both living in Venice, and I always wanted to ask him about his name change.
2: I was born Andrew Jonas Ginsberg. Pretty much was never known by my own name my whole life. What, what's with Australians and nicknames? I don't know why Australians do that. We either shorten a name to like one syllable with a vowel at the end. So you'd probably be Ado yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, as Adam. I was always uh, Ginz, which is my last name. Uh, so I think I've had about six or seven nicknames over my life, over my career. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so how did, how did Andrew G come about? Oh, look, so I... A bit of background is that I was um, working in radio in Brisbane and I had the, now bear in mind that the 90s were a very different time, Adam. It's Vegas. Rio de Janeiro. (laughs) FM radio in Australia, you couldn't have your real name. It was like, you know, Matty Stevie and the Log, (laughs) you know? Um, No, and so everyone had a nickname. Everyone had a radio nickname. And my radio nickname was Spidey, S-P-I-D-E-Y. Interesting. And so I was Spidey and then I was on air doing that for like four years in Brisbane. I started in radio when I was 20. And then I got a job down in Adelaide and I said to my boss at the time, a uh, radio kingmaker in Australia by the name of Craig Bruce, two first names, always be worried. <laughs> don't, don't ever trust someone with two uh, first names. I was in Adelaide. Now, Adelaide in the late 90s. I said, look, I want to be known as my real name, Andrew Ginsburg. He goes, mm, Ginsburg. This is Adelaide. G. (laughs) Edward G. That's what it is. That's how it came about. Stuck like poop to a blanket. Wow, a very clever bunch of men. Osher is one of four boys.
3: Both of his parents are doctors. He grew up in Adelaide, the southern part of Australia, and later Brisbane on the east coast. When he was twenty years old, he began his career in radio. From radio, Osher moved to TV hosting for Channel V, and after almost a decade there, he went to work at Network 10, where he hosted game shows and the Australian Idol. So, growing up in your 20s and 30s is Andrew G. I mean, yeah. we're similar age, and I remember seeing you on um, you know, Channel V and Australian Idol, yeah. and, and seemingly you know from an outsider's perspective you would have had the life i imagine like you you're a celebrity um tell us about andrew g in your 20s and 30s oh
2: i was blonde
3: you had uh, tips
2: as well didn't you oh what? no not tips out of no 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 i had full head of foils <laughs> three separate colors of blonde i don't know how i got talked into it um might have had something to do with the weed that my hairdresser used to give me before we sat down. (laughs) Um, But I can tell you that my career changed as soon as I went blonde. Everything was very different. Um, But uh, from the outside, yeah, it looked like, I'm sure, it looked like I was having a a great amount of fun. Um, I was telling myself I was having a great amount of fun and I was doing all the things that were like, This should be fun. I should be having fun. Any moment now, the fun's going to start. The fun never started. All that happened was I got more drunk and more high and more afraid. (laughs) That's all that really happened. Yeah. It was almost like I was going through all the motions that I thought this is what you should do when you do the job that I do, which is the the music television kind of – all areas laminate around your neck interviewing people travelling around the world guy mm. and I was like well no 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 you should have a gin and tonic at the bar at this this time of day I mean it's 10 o'clock in the morning I'm taking an international flight <laughs> yeah, <it's laughs> get your open boots open on game. get yeah. your boots on boys uh, but I was ticking all the boxes thinking this is what I should do but it, it wasn't ever uh, it wasn't really ever fun it, was, it just kind of you know I just kept uh, drinking hoping for the fun to start but it never did What were the things
3: that, like, you didn't like about Andrew G?
2: It was weird and exciting being a brand. Mm. It was, you know, I was very visible. Um, I was on a lot of televisions being on this. The, you can't make that kind of television anymore because this is a time before smartphones. It's a time before fast yeah, It's internet. all we watched. I'd noticed it starting when I was working on, on the cable television, on, on the music show Channel V. And uh, I, my brother would come down and visit me at, at the, we'd actually go to the shopping centre just down the street from where we are, the Broadway Coles down here, which is 24 hours, and we'd go shopping there and it'd be like, wow, people are staring at you. I and mean, We're just buying, just buying oats and soy milk. I'm like, yeah, I know, it's weird. But that kind of graduated to people shouting your name across the street to people running up to you on the street, grabbing you by the shoulders, screaming, Australia! Australia! And it's really frightening. When a complete stranger comes and grabs you by the shoulders and shakes you and screams at you in your face. I'm sure. Yeah, it's really, and, you know, if you didn't like it, people are like, oh, what'd you be so ungrateful for, you fuckhead? Come on. So I, I tended not to leave the house much if I didn't have to. And, and if I did, I I, I had the, the John Snow beer blanket uh, <laughs> <laughs> to, to protect me. <laughs>
3: um, so, mate, you went through a, uh, like a huge transition in in changing your name. So, how did that come about?
2: Well, it was the end of two thousand five. I was dating a, an Israeli girl at the time, who ended up becoming my first ex wife. Um, <laughs> and I went to Israel, and I sat down with this. Uh, Kabbalist mystic and I'm a a child of two doctors that both brought me up to be quite cynical and quite, you know, believe things if there's evidence and I'm like, well, you know, I may as well go and hear what this guy has to say. I said, okay, tell me your name, tell me your date of birth, tell me where you were born, tell me the time of your birth. Thankfully I knew all of those things with my name and my date of birth, time of birth. And I said, okay, so I was born on this day, about four in the afternoon on a Friday in this location. And he goes, okay. And he pulls down all these giant books off the shelf. And they look like phone books. They just have columns and columns and columns of numbers. Uh, I think they were like um, uh, star position and planet position kind of numbers. He goes, Okay. So when you were one, you were this kind of kid. And we went basically through every year of my life. By the time we got to like six, seven, eight, I was like, hang on. It wasn't like uh, like when you read your horoscope in the newspaper. So generic. That, yeah, yeah, so generic on. that anything can fit. He was getting so specific and he went through every year of my life. I was 31 when I saw him. He went through every year of my life and it was so, so, so specific. that, And I was uh, uh, observing it with a cynical as cynical a mind as possibly as I could. And he said, and this brings us, and he got all the way, and this brings us to today. And I said, all right, all right, all right. It was like that uh, um, Django. It's like, okay, now you have my attention. All right, he goes, so would you accept that I've now, I've been able to tell you what you were like before you walked into this room? Would you accept that if I kept going, I could tell you where you're going? I said, I could I see how you could you could come to that conclusion. He goes, and he said, okay, so I can tell you this path that you're on doesn't lead to a good place, but you can change the path that you're on. Uh, by changing your name. I'm like, yeah, pfft, whatever. And he goes, no, just just go ahead and do it. You don't even have to tell anybody. You don't have to tell your name's changed. So I was like, well, all right. He wrote a few names down and I kind of, uh, the first name I chose was uh, Or, O-H-R, which is the Hebrew word for light, because uh, I'd seen a, a, a village the day before in the north above the Sea of Galilee and it was the, Orot was the name of the village. but It just means lights. I thought, that's a cool name. And, I I kind of vaguely took that on, but no, it didn't really make any difference. And I thought, yeah, whatever, whatever. Anyway, a few years later, I was back in Israel, and I was shoot, we had to shoot a separate scene for the Australian Idol audition scenes, and and they needed a a, a scene where I was in a theatre talking about what was happening. So I organised a theatre. I organised a, a camera crew. I, I basically produced up this whole shot. It was about a two minute long monologue. And my producer on the day was ex-commando. They're all ex-commandos. And uh, he kind of smoked a cigarette out the side of his mouth. He was the coolest guy I'd ever met. And uh, everything was super easy. Everything was super cool. And his name was Osher. And I said, man, that's a, that's a cool name. He goes, you know what it means? And I said, what? He goes, it takes a big drag on his cigarette. They smoke like it's an Olympic sport in Israel. He goes, <laughs> it means happiness. <laughs> like, oh, that's a pretty cool name. And so I, I then went to my, uh, about a month later or so, I was back in Australia and I went to my, uh, my ex and I said, hey, you remember all those names that that mystic guy wrote down? Was Osher one of them? And she goes, yeah, it's second on the list. Really? I'm like, shit, all right, let's do it. Osher it is. That night, like four hours later, my phone rang. Craig Bruce says, uh, I need you to be at the station tomorrow morning, 4.30. I'm wow. there. Sydney Metropolitan Capital City Breakfast Radio. That's the biggest radio show in the country. The next day. Wow. And it kind of went from there. And pretty much everything changed after that.
3: What other changes did you make?
2: Well, I stopped drinking, uh, which had to happen. I started looking at my career very differently. I started... Pursuing, being trying to be less afraid of uh, people, like actively, you know, quite significantly taking action around my mental health and being trying to be as 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 proactive as possible about the treatment and management of my mental health, and um, if I was stagnating in my treatment, to actively figure out why I was stagnating in my treatment and. You know, even to the point of changing therapists if I needed to. Um, I ended up going through, I think, four psychologists before I found one that I started to feel better. I gave him a, you know, a couple of months. I didn't I? Didn't flip them every day? It was like maybe within a year, I would, I'd give th- three. Like I'd go to one for five goes, and eh, it's not really clicking. Go to another for about five or six goes, and eh, not really clicking. Go to another one. Oh, okay, so, okay, this is making sense. And uh, so that was definitely a thing I started. Most definitely, um, being very, very serious about um, tackling my mental health as as if I were, you know. say if you you know you see it all the time, you see guys in their fifties like, man, what happened? When did you start doing triathlons? Oh, when my doctor said I had a year to live if I kept eating and drinking the way I did, and they make this massive change, um, and no one blinks, right? Because it's like, hey, good for you, you're all fit now and you're eating well. Um, it was you know i could definitely see where i was going to end up if i didn't start taking my mental health seriously and start work, actively working on my mental health and actively treating myself and and taking action every day and you know to to treat and be much take much more seriously the the brain that i was born with
3: was there a significant turning point or was it the sort of the name change just sort of stepping back and
2: oh no no there was absolutely a significant turning point it was when i just headed into psychosis <laughs> Yeah, yeah. In um, I was actually I was living in Venice, and um, I uh, had a psychotic episode, and I, I descended into paranoid delusions, which I don't recommend mm. at all. They're horrible, and uh, I was kind of in and out of that state uh, for a couple of months, and it was really, really, really awful. And I would never, I would never wish it on anybody, and. Um, it only happened because I wasn't taking my mental health seriously and because I had let everything slip so past. So I'd just gone past all these red flags. Like um, two days go by without leaving the house, three days go by without leaving the house. And I wouldn't think anything of it, but it's actually not very normal to do because I was living alone. Um, four and a half hours of fitful nightmarish sleep was the, was the norm after a few months, like just flying past early, like losing heaps of weight and becoming more and more insular and, and kind of really jumping at spiders and, and panic attacks most days, you know, all of these things I really should have. These were big, big red flags, like waving on the side of the F1 track. Right. But I just went straight past them and, and I really, you know, now if I even just see the slightest, glint in the corner of my eye of one of those things, I, I'm right on it.
3: And, and so what do you do practically when, when you see
2: something that might, you know,
3: be heading you down that sort of path again?
2: I look at my calendar. I see what can I push for another week? What can I push for two weeks? What can I push for a month? I get as much as I can out of the way. I prioritize sleep first and foremost. Uh, You know, I know you've got a newborn, so I shouldn't be talking to you about sleep, but um, sleep absolutely is the most powerful thing. Am I getting an hour of exercise in a day? All right? Because I know if I miss that and if I go a few days without it, it just, I don't know what chemicals it releases in my body or, or what it does to my physiology, but it makes my brain particularly it doesn't react very well if I don't exercise at least every day. Am I eating a full, you know, serving of vegetables? Am I, how's my nutrition? So these three things, this is what normal humans do, is they sleep well, they make sure they're active, and they eat well. But these are the first three things that go out out the door when you get caught up in your head and you caught up in your head. Um, and, the, and the fourth thing I do is uh, I talk to my wife. And I, I asked, you know, she's often once, are you okay? She's, and that's been really helpful to have her in my life to, cause when I was living alone, you don't have that person. It's like, you're a bit twitchy, man. <laughs> you know, well,
3: Yeah. At that time, I mean, we, we were, you know, lived probably, you know, a kilometer and a half yeah. away from each other. And I, I actually remember, you know, I hadn't heard from you for ages and, um, you know, I gave you a call and then we, we had this discussion, which you just yeah. shared and it's like, oh shit, I, you know, you know, it's, so many times, you know, we just don't know as friends, as partners, mm. what to say to someone mm. or what to do when you know someone is really struggling with, the, with their mental health. Mm. So what, what advice would you have for people um, that know someone that is struggling with their mental health? What's the best way to
2: approach the subject or to do with, with that person? I think the, the, the issue was that even if you had called me in the times when you hadn't heard from me. I wouldn't have believed what you had to say. The part of my brain that could accept a rational description of what was actually going on was actually broken. So if you were to tell me, uh, can't you see that wall there is green? I would say, what wall? The part of me that could actually perceive your rational description wasn't working. And that's the trickiest part. Because that's the rabbit hole you get caught down. In. Certainly, if, if psychosis is is floating around the edges, you would, you're, you're unable to perceive a rational explanation for what's going on. So, what I would say to me, I would I would have asked me, "Are you okay? Like, be honest. Are you okay? Are you sleeping much? What's going on? Are you happy? Would you like to be this way, or would you like to like for it to stop? Being, would you like it for it to get better? Because it can get better." And that's, that's the trickiest part. Just trying to enroll someone in the idea that it can get better and there is, it doesn't, your life doesn't have to be this way every day. Um, I think that would be, because again, if you had told me, you need to see a doctor, I'm going to take you a doctor. I'd be like, you're in on it. Y- you know, <laughs> I don't want to go near you and I would have run away. Um, But if you, you know, gently ask me, you know, are are you okay? You don't really see yourself lately. What's going on? Are you sleeping? Are you eating? You know, you're not really personal intrusive questions. Are you sleeping? Are you eating? Mm. You know, are you talking to people? They're not really too intrusive questions, but they're big warning signs.
3: Yeah, and also find just um, asking someone to go for a ride, which we often Mm. did, or go for a a paddle, um, something sort of, you know, less confronting and and. Um. again, being active yeah. and and doing something just creates this environment where you can have these discussions.
2: Yeah. And it's like we spoke on that day uh, when we were paddleboarding and, you know, men don't talk face-to-face, men talk shoulder-to-shoulder. So go find something to go do with this friend of yours, whether it be go for a walk, whether it be go watch a game, whether whatever. And then, you know, I would, you know, if it's not around alcohol, it's probably going to be good. Uh, because you may need a bit of a clear head, particularly they might need a clear head. Um, All I will say is I'm really lucky I was sober at the time. I was really lucky I was sober when I was going through all this stuff Um, because it would have been a very different outcome. (laughs)
3: You're listening to the Movember podcast. This interview with Osha Ginsberg is the sixth and final episode of our season dedicated to transitions. I started Movember with my brother Trav and two mates, JC and Lucky. And even after 14 years of working in men's health, I still find it hard to tell my mates what's really going on. I just don't want to burden them with my stuff. But that attitude is so unhealthy. It's so important that we talk, but we also ask our friends... What's going on? What's really going on? And it's why we created the Movember podcast. And that's what we do on this show. We talk about the real shit. If you missed our previous conversations with Morgan Spurlock, Reggie Osei, Chris Hadfield, Andrew Denton, and Mick Aston, subscribe on iTunes and give them a listen. All right, back to the show now. How long have you been sober for now?
2: Uh, Seven... April, May, June, July—seven years and five months.
3: Wow! Yeah, yeah. And do do you actively keep a track of yeah, that? Yeah, yeah. Like
2: a, a goal, the anniversary, and yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Birthday, we call it. Right, <laughs> in our super secret sober society, of which names I cannot speak. Um, uh, how do you celebrate the birthday? Not with a glass uh, of wine. Te- I <laughs> <laughs> get a text and eat a cupcake. Uh, and I'm grateful, you know, because, and it's int- it's actually called a birthday, I think, because it, it, it truly is the day that, um, as, uh, you know, my mentor says, you know, you, the gift here is that you give, you get to live the rest of your life not being that guy, not being the guy that, um, did those things to his career or did those things to his personal relationships or did those things to other people. You get to live the rest of your life being a different man and, that's where renaming myself has also been very handy. Um, it's, uh, you know, it's not all of it. That's just, it's just a, a, a label. Um, but I'd like to think that, you know, I, I live my life actively very differently. Uh, not always in contrition, but sometimes in contrition of the things that I, I did when I was drinking. Um, and I'm, you know, it, it really is a, a, a rebirth it really, really is uh, of, you know, celebrating the end of one way of living and the start of another way of living. Mm. So th- this was
3: recently after um, your divorce. Yeah. So wh- what did you learn about that first marriage and and what have you taken into your new marriage? Um,
2: I Well, I learned that, you know, I need, I got born with a different brain and I need to take care of it And take it doesn't just look after itself like, uh, you know, other people seem to be able to go through life without having to do the amount of maintenance that I need to do. And, you know, it's important to remember that I need to do the best thing for myself and do the best thing for people that I'm inviting to be a part of my life by looking after myself. And I don't have the right to put anyone through my pain if I haven't, you know, if I've, if I've been slack and not taking care of my own issues, it's not really fair to put somebody else through that. And I would never want to do that again.
3: Osha moved to the States to co-host a show on CBS with Paula Abdul and has since moved back to Australia and is host of The Bachelor and Bachelorette. In 2016, Osher remarried. He met his current wife, Audrey Griffin, who is a stylist, on the set of The Bachelor. Audrey also has a daughter, and Osha talks about how marrying was kind of a two-for-one deal that was not just about love, but also joining a family. You remarried and yeah. you uh, Became an instant dad. Mm. Um, Stepfather. So how's that
2: changed you? Um, extraordinarily so. Um, uh, Georgia was 10 when I met her and she came just over my elbow. She was a lovely kid. Uh, she's now taller than me when she wears ug boots. So she only needs like a centimetre on the heel and she's taller than me. She's a lovely girl. She's 13 now. Um. She was my girlfriend's cool kid for ages. You know, we'd I'd come around and we would. She would make up dance routines, and we would dance in the living room together. And I would play the ukulele, and and we would make up entire you know musical songs, Broadway songs, and we would sing stories to each other. And it was really really fun. And uh, and then the next day, as if from one day to the next, she became it was she went from my girlfriend's kid to. I would do anything to protect you. I'm, I absolutely have to give up everything to provide for you. I would jump in front of a train if it meant saving you. Like boom, like overnight it just kicked in. Oh, that's the thing that I see my friends go through. And yeah, and uh, you know, teenagers are interesting. Um, I am parent of a 13-year-old, but I've got 3 years parenting experience. Hmm. So which is tricky because they tend not to talk back too much for the first eighteen months, I guess, while you are learning how to be a, a parent. Right. The greatest information, the greatest piece of information anyone ever gave me about being a parent to a teenager was: yes, it sucks when they ignore you, but you've got to be there for them to them to ignore. That's the important part of parenting a teenager. You've got to be there for them to be annoying to and them to be rude to. If you just go, because there is no one in my adult life that. I would ever let talk to me or speak to me that way, all right? And that's weird when suddenly you're like, hang on, this 11-year-old is challenging me as an adult. And when I challenge her back as an adult, boom, child crying, oh, no, I've gone too far. You know, like it took me a while to figure that out. took me a while to just, you know, understand that my job is to be the boundaries as she's pushing and figuring out her role as an adult in the world. So
3: you get to observe a lot of young men in this artificial environment competing for love. <laughs> um, what what have you noticed um, <laughs> the changes are in men
2: and masculinity? Oh, well, it is a very strange environment, but it, the emotions are all very real. It's a very heightened environment. Uh, we're talking about The Bachelorette, particularly when there's one lady and lots of boys. What I would say is that I never, ever considered looking after my body the way that these guys look after their body when I was in my 20s. No way. It was just not done, you know. I ran a bit, but that was it. And I look at these guys and they're, they're carved out of anchor rope, Adam. They just, I'm like, what do you, do you just live at the gym? Like these guys, I don't even remember anyone in my life having these kind of physiques. But this was in the '90s when I was in a band. You know, I was surrounded by stoners and and long hairs. I didn't know anybody that did push-ups, as far as body image and uh, a pressure to conform to this standard of incredible pecs, no chest hair, barely any body fat. Um, I don't know how I would have dealt with that in my twenties. <laughs> so, if you could
3: go through your 20s again. Yeah. uh, And 30s. Do you see the G phase of your life um, as what led you to who you are now? Or if you could
2: run at it again, would you do it differently? Oh, look, there's two ways to look at this. I'm very, very happy where I am right now. I'm uh, mentally healthier than I've ever been. I'm in a a beautiful, loving relationship with an incredibly funny woman. Uh, Smart. She's gorgeous. Uh, I get to be there for this incredible kid. I wouldn't have any of those things had I not taken every single step exactly the way I took it, mm. all right? I would have liked, you know, to have been less of an asshole. Um, that was all fear and I didn't need to be such a prick. I was afraid to leave the house, all right? So when I would get around people and I felt uncomfortable, I would react in a, you know, in a, like a pufferfish, you know? <laughs> You know, (laughs) I'll be safe if I'm alone and to make sure I'm alone, I'll I'll make you go away by saying this thing. But having said that, like I told you, I now get to live the rest of my life not being that guy. And even just telling you then, you know, in the last 30 seconds, I feel an emotional change within my body. I'm like, oh, that's right. Never forget that's inside you. And the gift you get to give to this person that you'll never get to say sorry face to face to is that you now live your life being a person that doesn't do that. And it's almost like a living amends. So in your 90s, uh, rocking back in a chair, yeah. what, what do you think you'll be most proud of? Cheapest um, In my 90s, what am I most proud of? I don't know. Hopefully it's making sure this oh, incredible young woman that I have, uh, you know, taken on a custodial, a custodial guardian or role has made you know, b- become an even more remarkable young woman, and you know I'm able to pass whatever knowledge and wealth I can onto her because I can't take any money with me. Mm. You know.
3: <laughs> well, Osha, thank you so much for um, being so open and honest um, with the discussions. Oh, thanks
2: for having me, Adam. I'm grateful I could be here, and I'm I'm happy to see the podcast is firing under your under your wing. <laughs>
3: Thanks for listening to the Movember podcast. We'd like to thank the Australian Broadcasting Commission, Martin Peralta, My Sonic Temple, and Emily Kennedy. And a big thanks to the Movember Foundation team, John Ackerman and Kirsty Wood. Music in this episode is from the Poddington Bear and the Free Music Archive. Mixing by Dara Hirsch. The Movember podcast is produced and edited by Rose Reed. And I'm your host, Adam Garoni. We really enjoyed making this season, and we're gearing up for season two. If you like the show, leave us a review on iTunes and tell us what you want to hear more of. It helps other people find us as well.